Welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich. My guest today is a remarkably successful Grammy Award-winning musician, composer, producer, and a very successful businesswoman to boot, Tina Clark. We'll be chatting a bit about the connections she's made in the music world, the mentors who have helped her, as well as her contributions to the betterment of society through her music. Tina also happens to be the author of a new memoir entitled Southern Discomfort, published by Simon & Schuster. It's about her childhood and early years and what appeared to be the idyllic Southern well-to-do family. The book, as we'll discuss with Tina, is about Southern culture in the 50s and 60s, family dysfunction, evolving racism. But despite all of that, you'll find a glimpse of redemption, some hope, and some love in this incredible memoir. Tina, what a remarkable book, uh, as I said in the introduction, Southern Discomfort. The title does say a lot. And before we get to the memoir, uh, you're an active lady in the media with music and promotions and advertising and composing. When did you have time to write the book? Let's start with that. Actually, it was like a love project for me that I did um, the weekends or I worked on it. I would take five or six days at a time. But it's been a long process. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, this, I started working on this, not to, not actually to write a book. I just, this started about, don't um, fall out of your chair, but about 20 years ago, I was working on um, producing an artist in Philadelphia for, well, writing actually with an artist that was on Blue Note Capitol Records. And I had come back to my hotel room and my dad was still alive at that time, and he and I um, were on the phone, and we were having a little disagreement, and my father was, um, I guess, famous far with me anyway for gaslighting, and, you know, it was, things didn't happen, even though you knew they happened, you didn't see things, even though you saw them, and I don't even remember what the subject matter was now, but Whatever it was, I just got off the phone and I just thought, you know, I just really can't do this pretend thing anymore. I really cannot live, not live my truth. Mm. I can't just go along and let it be. And I, and, and I thought, okay, I've got a little tape recorder here that I used to write songs with. I'm just going to talk and start and just tell my life growing up in, in Mississippi during that time and era. And for no reason, not for a book, not for a movie, not for anyone but myself. And I just started talking. And about eight hours later, I stopped talking. (laughs) And so I went back to L.A. and um, I talked to my attorney and said, do you have an assistant or someone that can take down the dictation from this little recorder? You know, and he goes, yeah, sure. Well, couple of days later, he reached out to me and said, what is this that she is dictating, that she's taking dictation on? And I said, it's um, my life story. Why? And he goes, well, all of these other gals around her are laughing and crying and pretty much every emotion there is, they're all reading it. And he said, can I read it? And I said, sure. Well, he read it. He calls me back and says, I want you to go and meet with the head of development at Geffen, and um, this is a movie. And that's where it it started. So I was put with a couple of writers, and I went home to see my mom. I asked her to read that 100 pages, because once that dictation was taken down, um, I mean, that tape was taken down, 
there was 100 pages single-spaced. And so when I showed it to my mom, she got very emotional and cried, and she said, you know what, I really want you to do this. Um, I think it'll be very cathartic for you, and I Mm. think it's important. But will you promise me you will wait till I've passed? Mm. Let me jump in for just a second. Thanks for explaining the birth of the book. It's fascinating. For the audience who has not yet read Southern Discomfort, there's the picture of the outside world looking in at a very rich family with everything going for them, the Southern lifestyle and, uh, you know, mom, dad, and the kids. And then the real story behind the story is what kind of a dysfunctional family of times it was. I can understand your late mother asking of you that request. Indeed. So let's talk a little bit about this because I read it and there are times when I had to reread a couple of segments just to make sure I understood what was going on because you've got everything from your dad who was a bit of a philanderer and a womanizer, uh, your mom who dealt with alcohol and mental illness and even gunplay. But there's also the racial tension element that was very much in play. Well, I think it's a story of, it's not a pity pot story. It is my memoir, but it's not a pity pot story. It is about Redemption, finding redemption and grace and love and forgiveness and trying to wrap my head around, as my mother would always say, it's complicated. Mm. And, and, and that, she would say that about my father um, when I would say, why I don't want gifts, I don't want money. Um, my father was famous for handing out $100 bills and I would say, I don't want to be, I don't really want to be wrapped in a hundred dollar bill. I just want his love. And she, and obviously my mother felt the same way. And she would say, he loves you as much as he's capable of, honey. Um, your father's a complicated man. <laughs> and so, and, and, you know, the South is a paradox too. I mean, it's, I, I love the South with, I mean, I hate the South with the, Fury, and I love it with an all-consuming yeah. passion. And it's um, it is complicated. And I think that this book, I think that when you read it, obviously, as you know, Jordan, there is a surprise at the end and a twist at the oh, yes. end. Yes. Um, but you just see how the the racial divides at that time and how they were played out and how equality was trying to find its root in its life somewhere there, which I still believe is very much in not, has it grown? Yes, it has grown. Has it grown up? No, it has not grown up. Well, let's, if we Um, can, Tina, talk about one particular person who is pivotal in the story, and that's she would be considered a maid or a servant. And Virgie is uh, obviously African-American, and a beautifully touching part of your memoir is the relationship you had with this woman who, in a sense, became sort of a mother figure to you, but she's treated back in the 1950s and early 60s with disdain as a black woman. It's not that many years later. It's hard to believe that that would have been the case, but it was. Yeah, it was um, the same thing with the relationships of the the black nannies and um the people that worked for families in the South, and I can only speak of mine, is there was this fierce loyalty between both parties, right? But it was as long as those relationships were held in a certain place. And I know that 
my mother or my father, especially my father, would have never wanted, I mean, either one of them would have ever wanted any harm to come to Virgie. But it kind of stopped there yeah, not, with my father. Not allowing her to eat in the kitchen. and uh, There are just so many things that are so abhorrent no, she today. Ate on the, she ate on the, right. with the stool, pulled up to the washing machine, and in, in, the, um, in the utility room. Yeah. And she sat in the back seat of the car, but I would, I would never let her sit in the back seat of the car. When I was in the car, even at a very young age, I would hop over the back of the car into the back seat, and you know it would drive my family crazy. But it was just never, it never fit to me. Mm. It never seemed right. Mm. It wasn't right. Tina, the memoir is called Southern Discomfort, and it's about a lot of things. But it's also about you as a young girl discovering yourself and also coming to terms with your own sexual identity. And I was thinking uh, it's tough enough to be black in the South in 1958, 59, 60, almost as tough to be young and uh, gay in that period down in that part of the world. Share with our audience a little bit about what you write about in uh, in Southern Discomfort in that vein. Yeah, I mean, I came out at the end of my senior year in college, and I think you know, all I can identify is what what I went through. But, you know, the other, for me, what was made it even more difficult was I came from a very prestigious family where all of my sisters were much, much older than me. And in their, you know, they're in their late 70s now. And one is, oh, the sisters passed away. But, you know, they were all drum majors and majorettes and, you know, Southern Bells. And so there was a lot of um, pressure put upon their little sister, who I felt like I had four mothers, and they're they're all wonderful, wonderful characters. And but and I had a totally different relationship with each one. But there was a lot of pressure to be either what they wanted me to be, and they had not become, or whatever it was behind there. But so it was quite the coming out when I came out. I have to say. Um, I don't know that they had ever known or been around anyone gay, or at least that they knew of. Um, and when I decided, you know, because I had done everything I was supposed to do as a Southern girl, you know, I was, um, I was always dropped or pinned or going steady with some guy through high school and college. And, you know, I was in pageants. I was, um, Everything that I was supposed to be except for myself, and I was dying inside. And when I finally did come out at the end of my senior year, um, each one of them had their own coming out process, (laughs) their own coming out process. And, you know, it was um, now when I look back on it, it was it's hysterical to me in a lot of ways. Um, But. They all found their way in a diff- in different ways, but my dad, which you'll have to read in the book, and I, when when he found out when we were out in the pasture in the pickup truck, and I told him, um, well, he asked me the question. Um, we never spoke about it again, and 
but you'll have to read yes. how he responded to that. Okay. And, and I want to ask you one more question or have you comment on one more aspect, because people may get the impression that these characters are two-dimensional, but they're actually more than that. They're, oh, yeah. they're three or four-dimensional. You mentioned the surprise twist, which we won't give away, but there are redemptive qualities that you were able to pinpoint despite the alcoholism, despite the behavior, the uh, overt racism and other issues. I mean, as a writer, I give you credit for being able to capture both sides, if if you know what I mean. Well, thank you. Yeah, because I, I've i always thought about all these years as dysfunctional as our family was and still continues to be in a lot of ways. We were very close. I mean, we loved each other very much, you know, and, and we've always been there for, for each other. But you just don't talk about it. You don't talk about the things that happened. You don't talk about the things that were bad. You don't talk about things that still mold and shape, have shaped your life. And look, I know that it's not just, you know, the, um, the South doesn't have a franchise on that. Most families are more, they're more dysfunctional families than not, as I've gotten older to realize. But I just think the South just takes it a, a whole lot deeper. And that dysfunction and the how it's handled and the crazy of just, I just think there's so much angst around trying to make everything look perfect and look the way it is not on the outside. You want it to be perfect. It does not matter that it is a whole lot of mess on the inside. There's so much that goes into keeping those secrets, you know, and I think that's what I got tired of. I just couldn't do it anymore. I understand. I understand. Let me branch out a little bit because you are a very creative and talented person. Music's been a part of your life since you were a little girl. You now are CEO of a company called DMI Music and Media Solutions. But more than that, even uh, on your resume, it's pretty impressive to see a Grammy award-winning songwriter, producer, and more. The initiative in music started at an early age with uh, a rather unusual instrument for a young lady, wouldn't you say? Correct. (laughs) Yeah. Especially back then. Yeah, drums, <laughs> yes, drums, 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 and uh, and then you went off to college. And was music your major in college at that point? Music was not my major. I was on scholarship with a jazz group in college, um, but I was going to major in music. I'm really glad I didn't. Looking back now, but um, at the time at, with this university, if you were a music major, you had to march in the band. Well, I had stopped marching in the band. I think my sophomore year in high school, because I was totally into, you know, full, full trap sets, full drum sets. I didn't want anything to do with marching. I thought it was, you know, back, I mean, in, in my mind, it was uncool at that point, which I don't think it's uncool, but, um, I, you know, wanted, when I went to college, I wasn't going to have anything to do with marching in a band. And so I had this scholarship and, with jazz, with this jazz group, and so no, I did not major. I see. In with anyone in the music business or the arts in general, mentorship is key. And boy, you've had some amazing relationships with some of the greatest names in the music industry. Want to share one or two of those names with us and how that all worked sure. out? Well, I think there was a lot of luck that was involved in it. There was a lot of tenacity that was. You know, every a lot of people have called me my whole life a cross between Scout and Edgy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just think it's like, somebody said the other day, and I just thought this was so great, I eat no for breakfast. 
And I think that I just loved it. I can't remember now who said it, but I thought it was great. And I just feel like that my whole life, you know, it's just been like, oh, a girl can't play drums? Well, I'm going to play drums. That's what I want to play. And I just feel like I never, you know, ignorance is bliss. And I feel like I never had any inhibition whatsoever of picking up the phone from the farm in Mississippi at, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old and trying to get in touch with that. To me, people, it shouldn't be impossible to get in touch with them. And for whatever reason, I would finagle my way. And one of those um, would have been Hal David. Um, God rest his soul now. Famous but says Hal from Burt Bacharach and Hal David, those, those two collaborators. Correct. Yeah, right, right. Correct. And he took me under his wing at a very early age. And I think more than anything, he was just, he got a kick out of and really didn't know what to do with me. This little girl from Mississippi, you know, reaching out to him. And eventually when I was um, in my late twenties and I met him face to face in Nashville, he said, you come to LA with me and I will take you under my wing. He said, you need to move to LA. You're a duck out of water here in Nashville. You're a pop and R&B songwriter. And you come out there and I'll help you out. And wow. I did exactly that. You can't learn and from then, a better better songwriting maven than Hal David. I'll oh tell you my that. God. Are you kidding me? And I remember, you know, I had the opportunity to write with Bert also. And I was just so nervous writing with Bert that I had never been that nervous before in my life. And um so anyway, I don't think he saw the better side of me because I was I never hardly at a loss of for words, but when I wrote with Bird, I was at a loss for <laughs> words, and that's not a good thing when you're supposed to be writing the lyrics. No, exactly. You need the words. The words are key. Can you just talk a little bit about one of everyone's favorites, and that's Stevie Wonder, because, I mean, he's a remarkable personality, having done it since he was about five years old. How did you meet Stevie and, and get to work with him? Well, he was, um, I was moonlighting at a studio in Louisiana. And I was also playing, I was a um, house in a house band that was playing in Biloxi, Mississippi. And so I met him at the studio because I was a second engineer, which is just, as you know, most of the time a glorified word for a runner or grunt. And, but, you know, I was working my way up. I was working like, you know, two different jobs. And he, um, he was just so sweet to me and he was so amazing to me and, and just kind of, you know, talked to me a lot and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, treated me like I was somebody. Mm. And, and so, you know, he would talk to me about what I wanted to do and what I, how I wanted to aspire in music. And, and then one night he showed up to hear me play and, oh. um, almost had a heart attack. And I think, <laughs> I, I said in another interview, I think my I think my bass drum foot was doing triplets and <laughs> not on purpose. Yeah. And I was so I was so nervous. But after he went back, he was working on Secret Life of Plants at the time. And when he went back, he had someone to call me and invite me to come to L.A. And I was like, well, I don't have any money to come to L.A. And he said, well. He would get me a one-way ticket, and when I got ready to go back, he would buy me a ticket to come back. <laughs> so I um, go to my dad, and I tell him that Stevie Wonder wants me to come to L.A. and 
My dad did not have a clue, knew nothing about music. He hated everything about music because, you know, my mother was a songwriter. Right, right. And and it, he could not stand it. He thought music was basically for losers and that, you know, stay away from it, although that had never worked with me. So <clears throat> he wasn't going to squash my dream, and all he knew was he didn't know who Stevie Wonder was, but... All he knew, because he had asked someone, because he knew I was coming to ask him, word travels fast in this little town, he knew he was a black man. So even though at that point my dad knew I was gay, when I go and ask him, not ask him, but I said, Daddy, I said, Stevie Wonder wants me to come to L.A. This is a chance of a lifetime to work with a genius, uh, just an icon. And he was like, is you... Go to L.A. with that black man. I'll say that. Um, not quite the way it was thank, said. Thank you, yes. Yes. I, yes. I will disown you. And so I looked at him and I thought, hmm, let me think about this. On one hand, go to L.A. with Stevie Wonder. And that was in the height, you know, of his career. Not that he's ever had a low, but that was in the 70s, and that was right before um, Higher Than July. Right. And... He said, I said, hmm, go to L.A. with Stevie Wonder or my dad disowned, disowned me. And I looked at him and I just said, see you, Daddy. What? <laughs> and so I left. My mother was very happy and excited. She was very supportive of me going. And um, I was with him. I went to the studio with him every single night for while he was doing um, – Recording well while he was actually writing and recording "Hotter Than July" on the album. That's an experience and that you can't you can't match that with any any kind of official never. in writing experience. That's that's magical you, to you be can. with an artist like that. Yeah. You know what, Jordan? You totally hit it on the head because when people would ask me, would say, "Oh, well, what did you learn?" When I got back to the, well, what did you learn? What did you do? And I was like, I can't explain it because. Just sitting on the piano stool in the middle of the night with him and me taking down lyrics as he's writing and singing and playing, it has changed me forever just to be around him and watch this. And when I went, came back, I knew that I want, because I came back to Mississippi and I got very serious about my songwriting then. And that's the place and time that I was like, mm okay, I can't be 30-something years old and my because and, I always wanted to, you know, have kids too. And I just thought, I don't want my daughters, you know, somebody say, hey, where's your mom work? Well, she plays drums down at Joe's Bar and Grill because that's kind of yeah, exactly. where the ceiling was for right. a female drummer. It's really interesting when you look at the memoir and you realize where you're coming from and where you are today, making music and using music as a tool to not only influence for promotional purposes, that's kind of the day job, but to, to change people's views and to inspire people and to make people think. So I'd just like you to comment before we wrap up on, on what music can do and what you've been able to do mm -hmm. with it, because I've read up on you and I've seen some of your work and, and the impact of it. If you would, share with us. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's definitely where I am and where I've landed in these, I'd say in this past decade is it's it's about writing and 
and ha- using music for change and using music for storytelling. It's all about storytelling. And I have people to say to me with um, when since I've been on this book tour, what is the difference in writing a song and writing a book? And I go, well, a song is about three to four minutes, and a book it was about three to four years. Um, but it's all about telling a story. It's about telling whether it's your story or telling a story, for example, with the songs that I write now for change. And I've, um, I just find that I'm not inspired a lot anymore to write anything that I don't feel like has the potential to make a difference, to make someone think, to make someone feel, um, you know, there's no, um, music is a, an emotional connection, mm. whether it's between two people, whether it's between a place and a time or a place and, 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 and you know, just a time in your life, but it's also about connections right. and music has no boundaries. And so a couple of the things that I would say I am most, you know, humbled and happy with is um, Eve Ensler had reached out to me several years ago, probably five years, four or five years ago, and wanted me to write the theme song for One Billion Rising, which was her dream of having a billion women walk out on a certain time of year and uh, protest violence against women and across the globe. And so I wrote a song called Break the Chain, I had Debbie Allen to direct, I mean, direct and choreograph it. And it's been a phenomenal movement that Eve has created. And I've just been happy that I was asked to write that song. And you're so right, Tina, how music does have no boundaries and it's universal and and it's what connects us all together. Ultimately, It's, it's a sad thought that your dad was not in favor of music, but he took that path in his life. Before we wrap up, a very interesting follow-up to what you said at the beginning of our interview. Geffen talked about this as a movie, Southern Discomfort. Is there any movement now that the book is out and doing well that this will finally happen, do you think? Well, I'm hoping, I sure hope so. Everybody that reads it tells me they they cannot wait to see the movie. They see it as a movie. It's, it's, um, it's kind of, I mean, what people have said to me, they feel like it's To Kill a Markenberg meets fried green tomatoes and still magnolias and a little bit of help in there. And it, I throw in uh, it, Driving Miss Daisy, too, if you don't mind. Can I throw that in? Driving Miss Daisy and um, <laughs> maybe, maybe something to talk about. Remember that movie? Well, um, it, it would be an actor's dream to play any of the characters, yeah, oh including your parents, including your sisters, including you. So, I mean, they're so, and, and Virgie, they're so well-drawn because they're real. <laughs> just... It's being pitched. It's being pitched. It just came out to be pitched, and it's being pitched right now. Um, to different studios and, and producers. So I just, you know, I try not to think about it. I just know that I, I don't want anybody, obviously, and they wouldn't, I would hope, that would want to do this that does not completely love it and get it and know that this is a story mm-hmm. that is timely and timeless and needs to be heard. I mean, be seen. Indeed. It, it is quite moving and it, it gripping from page to page, Tina Clark. And before we uh, sign off, you, how Jordan. can people find out more about your company? What's the best website to go to? About my company? or about Well, the- about you or your company. We'll give both sites. you got your own okay. site, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, if um, about the book, you can go to, I'm on, uh, my publisher is Simon & Schuster. You can go to Simon & Schuster. You can go to Amazon. 
You can go in any bookstore, or you can go to tinaclark.com, and that's T-E-N-A, Clark, C-L-A-R-K.com. Right. And you can read all about the book. You can see all the incredible reviews, yada, yada. Um, about my company, which has been in existence for 21 years, um, it's DMI Music and Media. And if you just go to dmimusic.com, that's D as in dog, M as in Mary, I, music.com, you'll see what my day gig is. <laughs> it's quite a it's quite a production element that people will enjoy. There's a lot of good stuff on that website too. That's why I wanted you to mention it. A delight to connect with you. Uh, thanks to my wife. That's how this is all coming together. Yes. She met you at a conference. She brought the book home and uh, she said, "Read this and talk to Tina." I said, "Anything you say, dear." But it's it, I'm so glad that we have become friends. And you're really an amazing lady who's got a great story to tell. So thanks for sharing it with us on the podcast Thank today. Thank you, Jordan. I can't wait to see you and and Roberta. Thank you so much. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mike with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and, of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good.